my name is Patricia and I am the creator and host of Closer Podcast. Closer is a podcast project that aims to create a genuine and fun dialogue that reveals who we are, how we think, and what moves us. Today, we are closer to Eduardo Reich, talking about what it means to be a man in a world that pressures men to be at their best at all times. So stay closer and have a look. Well, what constitutes the concept of victim of violence? Is it possible to be a male victim of violence? Or is it possible? Or is it just like female mm -hmm. victims? And then if that applies by by implication, by consequence, what kind of men am I? Am I weak? closer to Eduardo Reich, who is a PhD candidate in psychology at Ixte University of Lisbon in Portugal. In his PhD studies, Eduardo investigates male victims of intimate partner violence. Previous to his PhD, Eduardo was working on anti-smoking campaigns. Besides his academic work, Eduardo considers himself as an activist and has been a volunteer in different associations. Born and raised in Rendufas, a small village in the center of Portugal that did not appear in GPS until only a few years ago, Eduardo moved to Lisbon, the capital, to study. I talked with Eduardo in February 2020, previously to the COVID pandemic lockdown. like to start by asking you a question that I usually ask everyone I interview, um, which is, what is your earliest memory? And by earliest memory, it can be anything you can think of. Um, That's a tough one, I guess. Um, probably being in my living room and playing around with like toy trucks and toy cars and toy stuff. But it's not very... I, I can precisely recall it but I think that would be the one thing and this would be in your house the living room in your house in Lisbon yeah. no actually it would be in my uh, hometown in the village at the very center of Portugal it has like 160 or 170 people it's like small it's like when GPS was in like came to Portugal it literally did not show up Oh, in really? The, the does it so show up now? It does. <laughs> because before you were driving and then it's like, and now you're going to like woods. Nothing. No road. No nothing. Uh -huh. And we lived there. We had always lived there. But it wasn't even uh, charted on the map. What's the name? Rendufas. Rendufas? Yes. That's so cute. 
That's yes, a, cute name. a lot of people like it. Yes. Yeah. So you, your earliest memory is related with playful behaviors that you yes. that you had, and would you play a lot outside in the woods? Would you do these activities with your friends, and mm -hmm. and how did you combine this with the solitude of your earliest memory? I think it's um, and now I see it as a, a great plus of my exper life experience growing up in a more um, well natural uh, location or or context given that I could literally get out of the house in the morning in the summer with my best bud who was my neighbor and we would just go into the fields play secret agents and then <laughs> chasing stuff and then doing crazy uh, kid stuff um, but yeah it stimulated me to seek to explore to uh, go different I, I was always like interested in finding like archaeology archaeological mm -hmm. stuff like fossils or something I grew up close to uh, an archaeological place where they found like dinosaur stuff so I was like I'm really going to find the next big thing mm -hmm. and it's going to be amazing for paleontology it did not happen oh but yes still it stimulated me to go outside and play and be yeah. inventful yeah, yeah. And then you moved to Lisbon by the time you had your university studies. Exactly. Yeah. So until like your uh, 20s, you were in this uh, village that you could not be visited because it would not appear in GPS. <laughs> <laughs> and I do like until I was 17, actually. Mm -hmm. Later, uh, as GPS, when I came to Lisbon, it already... Um, was present it was in the established. GPS yeah, it was so formally a Portuguese land. We got land. that. <laughs> yes, that's good. Um, but yes, I lived there for 17 years and I visited regularly for the first years of my university studies. Okay, and what was the impact of moving from this village where you were looking for dinosaurs to a capital? When I first visited Lisbon, in my early childhood, visiting uh, family, I would assume, uh, I hated it. It was a huge mess. It was so chaotic, cars, people, the dimensions of things. I wasn't used to buildings that were so big, for instance. It was really a sensorial like overload. Yeah. Um, the fact was, I matured and I grew up, and I understood definitely that that hometown where I grew up in was not my future it certainly was my past but it certainly wouldn't be what i wanted to to follow or, or go through in life with so i my my aims were set for lisbon because i see i saw it and i still see it as a land of opportunity and a land of diversity and a land of so much more and now i'm I feed off these the stimuli, all of these things that are happening. It's for me, it reinforces me. It's like it keeps me going. So yeah. I like it. Going back now to a little bit of uh, some work you have done, and now I'm I'm thinking about the impact of your work in the city, uh, such as the outdoor campaigns. Mm -hmm. So like the campaigns that you see when you are in the streets, and yeah. they can be in, in a bus stop uh, in an anywhere actually they can be yeah. exposed anywhere and how these are so public you know it's 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 the thing that um 
I'm gonna stop and read it is what makes people stop while they are on on their way yeah. to somewhere else. And I know you worked in anti-smoking campaigns, and yes. now you shift the direction a little bit to anti-violence campaigns. Um, and one of the things that I noticed when I started reading your work and that I found really interesting is that you try to understand what makes people really stop and look at a campaign, yeah. which is either fear or humor. It was, yes, yes. So tell me about that. Okay, so um, regarding my master's dissertation on anti-smoking campaigns, we tested... Are you a smoker, by the way? Not right now, but I definitely was a smoker many years after At the, the time thesis. that and you did during the campaign. During the thesis, no. it was, it's a shame. Did you stop smoking because of your campaigns? No, Okay. but not because I, it was, I believe it was like due to repeated exposure to these topics, but that's my yeah. excuse. Okay. Um, but definitely... It's an addiction. Nicotine is addictive to me and it's gratifying. So that's why that's, that was my advice of choice. On my dissertation, I yes. chose to understand how humor or fear impact people when I see these anti-smoking campaigns, mostly because when we saw them, um, at least in Portugal, uh, the anti-smoking ads in, for instance, tobacco packets, mm -hmm. packs, or the advertisements uh, and video, they were pretty shocking. Oh, Mostly yeah. biological uh, diseases caused yes. by, by tobacco. And our thinking, and this was based on theoretical principles, uh, on fear, uh, on risk perception by people, mm -hmm. our hypothesis was perhaps this fear is counterproductive because mm -hmm. we should be trying something different because people may, be, may feel... Um, resistant to this. This is so strong that people might... Or well, it can be... even have the opposite effect. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, that is all stated in the literature and as mm -hmm. we shown previously. So what we found is, was that these ads um, provoked more than fear, they provoked also sadness. Yeah. And sadness is a very different emotion from fear and it has different implications and these campaigns often did not operationalize the... Um, the components of a campaign advocacy. And in my PhD thesis right now, I'm working on intimate partner violence directed at men in different sex and same-sex relationships. And once again, tailoring public awareness campaigns yeah. that help disvictimize men in, in specific. These men who actually were targets of, of violence. Um, we are trying to find out more about what makes these campaigns effective mm -hmm. and trying to better manage how to provide enough fear because fear is necessary but to provide a higher sense of empowerment and a higher level of knowledge about what is available to escape mm -hmm. these threats it is also interesting to think about who is going to fear this right yeah. for example with smoking cigars um what we see is this match like the the enveloping cigar uh, mm -hmm. box which has these awful images of I don't know people dying and their limbs and organs that are damaged by the smoke yeah. but this causes fear to everyone I mean even especially probably people that do not smoke and therefore they don't look so often at the at these images so they are startled more yeah. and uh, for anti-violence do you also want to advocate a more 
community sense of everyone should stop and look at it or do you would you like to target more the people that are actually suffering mm. from violence most of my phd is about tailoring the campaigns to the target public because a one-size-fits-all approach has been shown that it has it can have more negative effects than positive because um, according to the theories of risk perception and risk um, information, if the fear overcomes the person and if the person feels like she, he or she cannot uh, properly assess and properly... Cannot bear it. Bear like, it. It's overwhelming, yeah. There is a possibility that something called the boomerang effect uh, occurs and the person can actually feel... Um, there is no option, there is no chance, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to follow, uh, I'm going to do the, the behavior that is in question, that we want to stop, mm. because it's still, there is no chance, there is no way out, so That's I'm just going to do it. So, in smoking, people engage in three types of, of reactions when the fear is, is too much. They just um, deny it and say, okay, that is not true at all, so I don't care what happens. They avoid it because they literally understand. Okay, this might be something. There must be. There might be something here. Perhaps I should be paying attention to it. But I'm not in my life uh, context right now, able to deal with this. So we postpone it. Like, oh sure, I'll stop smoking in five years or something. They never do eventually. And third, which is the worst, which is reactance, in which people not only understand the arguments that are being posed, but they reframe them and they reappropriate them in the way that they see fit. This is kind of similar to how people say, um, okay, you should, you should stop smoking because this nut, and the person reacts with, Sure, smoking is hurtful, but I know people who have been smoking until their 90s and they don't have health problems. That is naturally the exception mm -hmm. because smoking causes like 9 or 10 different types of cancer because it reduces your overall well-being, it's an addictive problem, it is an expense on your wallet and it's not good in any circumstance. It's never good, so you mm -hmm. should just stop it. Yeah. That's interesting how people um, protect their mind uh, when things are overwhelming when they feel helpless yeah that's, that's yeah. kind of when we feel helpless in the in the face of a situation yeah. no way out we we do have to do something and yeah. it's so interesting to see how different reactions can vary definitely i'm really sorry but i did not answer your question regarding tailoring or community sorry <laughs> which was to say that Tailoring matters because of these reactions that might occur. With my PhD, we're trying to first put the people who are the targets of violence first. So we should, uh, we are going to make a campaigns that are tailored for them, but also invoke social norms regarding what is the nature of violence, what are the mechanisms surrounding reacting to violence, among others. And hopefully, and most surely, they will have like a, an effect on those who surround the bystanders in violent situations. So it's not only informative and adequate for those people, the, the people who are targets, but as a consequence, it also sheds more light and improves knowledge on those surrounding them. Usually that's, that's what happens.
While closer to Eduardo, we talked about the concept of violence and how it is intrinsically related with the concept of victim. Men, who traditionally are stereotyped to be strong, fearless, and on top of things at all times, rarely identify themselves as victims, even when they are suffering from violence. This conversation was held in Eduardo's comfortable living room in Lisbon. During our conversation, I noticed a book that was in his bookshelf and that had him as an author. When I discovered this, Eduardo laughed as if I discovered his secret. It was a book of poems that he wrote many years ago. I was able to convince Eduardo to read one poem. This conversation was followed by a pasta alla bolognese cooked by Eduardo, who is also an amazing cook. I met Eduardo because we enrolled in the same PhD program and we also shared the same office where we sat across each other. Usually there is someone that knows another person that is a victim yes, of violence yes, and, yes. and uh, can take action in a different way. Mm -hmm. And I find it very interesting that you are someone that speaks to a very specific audience, but also very broad audience in a sense that um, it is in a public environment and you're talking about anti-violence against men. You take this very intimate subject, uh, the violence, And you bring it out to the streets, you know, mm -hmm. as if you are trying to find the dinosaur here again. <laughs> And uh, there is a communication effect mm -hmm. here, yeah. uh, right? Like you need to expose a message in a way that someone can receive it and do something with it. And I wonder if you ever thought about it like this, if this is uh, some way that you deliberately choose to communicate but also what inspired you to communicate in this form public, publicly with such an intimate topic that is so hard to, to deal with, to live, and even to, to change it? I would say, that, uh, firstly, the, the way that I'm communicating, yeah, I would materialize that into the campaigns, which usually are like image stills, posters or, or billboards or could also in the future be videos um, because usually visual information is is very easily accessible and we are used to it in advertising all of them. We are steaming from principles of social marketing, which is a kind of a category in the literature, mm -hmm. to catch um, capture people's tensions and everything. Why public? I... I I love the idea and I feel inspired by the idea of having the capacity to positively influence the attitudes and behaviors of people on a, on a bigger scale, on a bigger reach, because this is proportional to how complex and how intrinsically um, linked intimate partner violence is with our society. It, it happens basically everywhere. There is not a place in Portugal or unfortunately in the world where you go where you don't find, as you said, someone who knows someone or the, the, the person themselves. Mm -hmm. so, so there is no country known to have zero violence. Oh, no. No, no. Mm -hmm. No, it, it's pervasive. It's, it's so 
so deeply buried into our our the fabric of our society and the relationships that we have depending on many many different individual and also um, interpersonal factors as well um, we must apply the best medicine for that specific problem providing uh, uh, there are many interventions that we do on this topic but this public awareness uh, component or, or option seems to be a very viable one, given that it has worked in the past in other countries, and also because it has the capacity to reach everyone without implicating them. We are not stopping the person and saying, so do you want to know more about intimate partner violence? And then the other person would have to react. Imagine if that reaction could be an indicator of how he or she feels regarding this. He or she could legitimize violence. Mm -hmm. He or she could have been the target of violence. So, it's not personal in that way, but the information reaches the person anyway. So we provide the autonomy to the person to do something with that, fortunately, we hope, adequate and more informed um, knowledge about these topics. So it's like coming, giving back the autonomy to a lot of these men, in my case, to be aware of what violence is. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest problems in the world right now in this topic of intimate partner violence People are not, do not understand properly what constitutes violence. They legitimize many aggressive behaviors and they say, oh, marriages are complicated. Mm -hmm. Or, uh, you know, it's not going to be, nobody's perfect. Or, you know, he or she does that, but in the end, he or she still is still there for me and he or she loves me. Um, love is not abuse. That's one of the main myths. If somebody respects you, if somebody feels this certain kind of positive, beneficial, romantic, romantic, amazing way towards you, he or she will not put you through some sort of things. Mostly like understanding what violence is, what are the mechanisms that people can use to avoid this, recognizing in a prevention way, recognizing the early signs of violence. And there are so many things that are crossing my mind right now yes. because Okay, I'm going to start with the first. Um, so you're talking about violence in uh, loving relationships. Ro yeah, romantic, intimate, 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 romantic. This could be like dating also, but uh, this is different from domestic violence. This is just a, a preface yes. because domestic violence occurs in the context of the family. So it could be from an uncle to a nephew. It could be from a son to his father. It could be any variations. Mm -hmm. I specified on my PhD for the intimate partner violence to focus on the diets. Okay. Two, people. two people that are Same closely... sex, different sex, who self-identify and have consensually uh, accepted that they have a romantic relationship. Okay. So, so going back to the basic principle of being romantically involved with someone, you, it, it's your choice. To be with the person yes. and you you probably fell in love you like so many things about he or she you feel attracted to the person you want to spend time physical time uh, psychological time yes. any time yes. is good to be Obviously. with this person that is so special to indeed you. and then this person that you care so much about uh, becomes your worst enemy in a sense that um, you can be abused by that person, 
And I wonder how this yin yang works. How can you go from deep love to um, hurting someone, which goes beyond a normal discussion mm -hmm. between two people mm -hmm. because arguments do happen and they are mm -hmm. also important for building relationships and growing. Uh, but how can that become the, the other side of the spectrum? What do you think happens? But the point is, let's start with the definitions. That is not love. If it becomes abuse or if it has abusive uh, components, it's not love. closer to Eduardo Reis talking about becoming a man. front mm -hmm. you have not only done outdoor campaigns so very public speaking but also very mm, individual uh, actions in a form of interviews with men yes so i'm sure this uh, was it's like a mission impossible that you accomplished here because you are calling men that um, see themselves in a relationship in an abusive relationship to come and talk with you yes and try to understand more about their mm, psychological decisions of being in a relationship can you tell me a little bit about your experience so as an indicator i don't think i will share uh, many of the main results of the interviews even of though course. that we're still working on it um but i can tell you for instance to achieve this sample, we partnered up with a, a, a governmental agency, which is um, the Commission for Citizenship and Equality, and they provided, they disseminated our study in the National Network for Support of Domestic Violence uh, Victims, which are like dozens of places. Mm -hmm. And then we partnered with the other NGOs, like um, APAV, the Association for Victim Support here in Portugal, Ilga Portugal, which is yes. a, an, an LGBTI plus uh, organization. And we partnered also with the only um, shelter for male, um, for people who identify as male and are the targets of violence in, in Portugal. We ran this call for participants for like a year and several times mm -hmm. using social network and its connections. And we got like 15 participants. 15. 15. Yeah, so for one year... Yeah, over a national network of yeah. victim support things. Which includes uh, millions of people, The I'm Association sure. for Victim Support here in, in Portugal, APAV, also has dozens of offices that mm -hmm. support yeah. victims of crime. And we got 15 mm -hmm. men that identified to be... Uh, that identif identified themselves to be as victims of, of violence. 
or uh, and they were in the same sex or different sex relationships they could be in different sex relationships so they could be they they could perceive themselves as victims and the abuser was a female yeah and it could be an abuser as a male so these yeah. 15 people had this diversity we have like over basically half an hour of sample of different sex and same sex one one of the topics mainly and that i would like to bring attention here is the concept of victim because um i'm trying to reframe it in a way that when we talk about this we focus on behaviors and not identities our call did not call for victims our call said that if you were a target of of abuse in your in your relationships you are a male in different mm -hmm. sex and same-sex relationships that's very this is important this, distinction it, yeah yeah it is specifically in social psychology which is the field i'm working on and deriving the concept of how central or salient certain identities are is crucial for this these problems because we might be calling for the wrong name. Imagine that you're in a crowd and then I wanted to call you and I would call you Carla. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't look at me. Yeah. Like, that's that's not my name. But if I mention specifically, like, a person who has brown hair, who this, this, who is conducting a amazing podcast, <laughs> etc., you probably would look yeah. at me. So, so describing behaviors yeah. instead of identity that is my i'm working on it so it's not final but firstly what does constitute now i'm talking about the identity what does what, what constitutes the concept of victim of violence is it possible to be a male victim of violence or is it possible or is it just like female mm -hmm. victims and then if that applies by by implication by consequence what kind of man am i Am I weak? Do Am they... I man enough? Yeah. So yeah, that's um. It it's like the saying, "Men don't cry." Yes. Or men up. Men up. Men don't. Men are always ready for sex. Yes. So all of these stereotypes, especially in a Latin culture, yes. as we are living in, yeah. that I mean, there are definitely stereotypes for women, but definitely for men that they are very strong as well. Especially these men don't cry, which makes it's very confusing because of course they cry. And even in this situation, which is not violence, it's just crying, how do they deal with that? You know, because they, it's not like they can expose it to the world in a natural way as maybe women do. Yeah. And, um, and how do they reflect on this? Do, do they have, do they tell you this that, um, and even do they speak with other people about it, with friends, assuming that, I mean, their family knows the partner and maybe they have a common group of friends. Maybe the friends love the person. So mm -hmm. We can conceptualize it like in many different levels. OK, so I'm just going across some culturally men are not taught to be emotionally, um, at least emotionally available to talk about or to yeah. feel things. So they are taught to be traditionally, traditionally, let's emphasize on that, to be um, kind of stoic, kind of yeah, always strong. strong and resilient and capable solid. and solid and unbreakable yeah. and amazing. Nevertheless, uh, obviously, these kind of expectations ruin somebody on the inside because 
life is tough for anyone, men yeah. or women. And then when things don't go your way due to your own actions or actions that are not dependent on you, how are you supposed to keep up with this? This dissonance, how could I be the type of man, like a lesser kind of man that allowed my, in the traditional sense, okay, the woman that I'm with to uh, be able to inflict these things upon me. Mm-hmm. Like, I can defend myself. Like, I'm not physically strong. Like, I'm not naturally much of the violence is psychological. Um, how, how, what, it's a bit of like, in which box do I fit now? Like, what kind of man am I? If I'm a victim, what kind of victim am I? So how do you, um, how do you, how are you able to, to coexist in these two different paradigms? One is hypermasculinity and how you're always actually ready, are actually incredible and strong and are able to do everything. And according to traditional and hegemonic masculinity in different sex relationships, because same-sex relationships are never considered in traditional masculinity, naturally. Unfortunately, obviously. Um, if you exert your masculinity in the correct way, air quotes here, um, you are dominant over the female. Mm-hmm. You control her. The man, if we have a Portuguese saying, which is the man wear the pants yes. in the house. Yes. You know, so that's how you do masculinity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're supposed to be strong, you are in charge, you dictate what happens. The current COVID-19 pandemic has specifically conditioned those who were and are at risk of violence. If you know someone in a situation of violence or are in one yourself, Try to ensure this person's or your own well-being by reaching out to institutions that are here to help you. Some international resources for men and women victims of violence are the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence and the Hotline. If you are located in Portugal, you can reach out to the Commission of Citizens and Gender Equality Helpline, the Portuguese Association for Victim Support, APAV, or ILGA Portugal. They can provide you with valuable information, different ways to overcome your situation, or even just someone to talk to. You can also reach out to Eduardo. The links for all of these resources and Eduardo's contact are in the full description of this episode, which you can find by going to the Instagram account of Closer Podcast. And I think it's hard for the society as a whole to understand how it is possible for a man to suffer violence from a female partner. I think it is also very difficult to understand between the same sex, Mm -hmm. but especially in different sex, when the victim, in this case, is a male, you are struck by this information. How is it possible? Because there is a set of assumptions that just don't make sense. Indeed, indeed. indeed. You are breaking... All, many rules at the same time. So even in same sex, the gender norms are so inherently ours, unfortunately, due to our cultural upbringing, not our biology, just what we are taught and how we live in society. Because we are taught these things, they are ingrained in us and we take them, unfortunately, with us 
throughout our lives and unless you have a very critical very open-minded uh, position towards it you end up replicating it in the same sex relationship one of the assumptions you could have as a society is also that people would have a deeper understanding about each other at levels that in different uh, sex relationship this is mm -hmm. impossible just because you know one is a man and another one is a woman yeah. so biologically your bodies are different and they function different yeah. and sometimes i mean we we even have the saying uh, i don't know what she means she's a woman or or the opposite yeah, yeah, i don't know what he yeah. means he's a man you know um and in the same gender relationship you would assume that okay we have the same biological body although it might function differently and i'm sure everybody's different mm -hmm. um could be more empathy towards the other but in fact the cultural norms seem to prevail somehow um, and I wanted to ask you if you ever um, predicted that you would be facing questions that, such as what it is to be a victim what it is to be masculine and even what it is to be feminine and how does this relate or does it even make sense to talk about a distinction between them um, given the fact that being this solid fit man or this you know um, emotional woman mm -hmm. uh, is not really what happens in real life mm -hmm. and how people even experience it well definitely we, we can to some extent predict some things and we have the literature around that and everything but naturally there were also things that were unexpected and that's great because that's what we want that's why we need research to better understand this if in a year I had access to 15 men, this is a clear indication that um, we can see that as an iceberg. There are many more men who are um, the targets of violence in their relationships, but they don't come out and they don't speak about it. So we must tell people to find out about these particular things and uh, the particular phenomena that underlie this violence. In terms of how this relates on a, I believe, personal or academic level, regarding femininity, regarding masculinity, they exist as structures in society. Right. I wanted to follow up on that um, with a poem that I discovered. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to read it. It's a poem by Randy McClave and it's called Becoming a Man. Awesome. Okay. The father told his son when he becomes a man to always be the very best that he truly can. Becoming a man pertains to wisdom and not of age. Don't enter it with simplicity and never with gosh. In your life, you can become either ruthless or very clever. Truth and honesty will always be your best endeavor. I hope you, my son, will choose wisdom and be very kind. Then truly, as a real man, you assuredly will be defined. When you help the needy or the poor, manhood you will learn. But don't ever do it for glamour, to expect praise in return. The day will come when the deeds of your life will be read. Then all will know you as a man, from the road you have tread. A man can give his soul to God and become a caring preacher. Or he can give his life to students and become a fine teacher. He could use his hands to become a farmer or a technician. But please, my son, don't ever become a politician. I find this amazing because that's something. Um, so basically, it's about the father 
talking to his son and, and all of the things that a man is and what he would expect his son or wishes his son to be. But I think your work was a personal journey for you as well because you've learned so much with it and uh, you've spent so many hours in these topics. And I, I wanted to ask you um, if, if you still enjoy it as much or because it can be so heavy at the end of the day sometimes that you what are your strategies to cope with with your own because a phd is four or five years you know and how do you how do you find hope in what you do and how do you pass critical times of when mm -hmm. it can become heavier for you well a simple answer first of all i do therapy which helps uh, Which is another stereotype, doing therapy, in general. About, uh, the, uh, yeah, people right? have the stereotypes against Again, doing Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, or, or, or it's unfavorable, a taboo. Yeah, unfavorable things. Yeah, sure. No, I don't care about that because I need therapy <laughs> <laughs> to keep everything We all to, need. Yeah, to keep the, the train going. Um, it definitely is a personal um, progress. It's never something that is finite or definitive. It's ever ongoing. If we talk about gender, I must question who I am as a man um, frequently because I'm talking about masculinity, because I'm talking about femininity, because I'm talking about mostly what happens when things go wrong, basically, and how people maneuver those strange times, I would say. It's helpful in a way because it leads me to reflect about different strategies that people use. I use therapy, for instance. I also surround myself with people that I like and that I try with my supervisors to keep me on track and to keep me um, from certain biases, of course. That's why we have also peer review. But it definitely is an active attitude that we must adopt. We must not take things for granted as i said i think that nobody is um uh, can can say that he or she has never perpetuated or replicated some gender um stereotypical attitudes or behaviors in the course of a lifetime because we oftentimes do not understand to what point are we impacting something or someone by doing something okay so we can measure the extent of that action and also because it's cultural we've learned so many things there are some so many things that are ingrained in us that it's so difficult to detach it from us so it's a personal journey definitely i i also um when things go a bit south and things are, are more difficult i try to think of the practical implications. I chose to do this PhD mainly because on the campaigns, because I wanted to have something that I could hold on my hand, that I could see outside, and that could have a practical implication on people's lives. It sounds dreamy and cliche, but it's what I like, and what makes sense for me. No, not at all. And I think it's a, it's a sign of change and hope and energy towards a goal that is very brave and very difficult to achieve. And um, do, you, do you consider yourself an activist? Definitely. I've been part of Before Portugal, which is a, okay. a, a, a movement for gender equality. And I was part of the UN. I am currently not 
there anymore. But once again, questioning my role in all this, I was part of a movement that aimed to put the spotlight on how men could act towards gender equality. And that, I tell you, when you go to a conference or a, a colloquium or everything, and then you're among the few men in the room, and I'm a white man, we must consider everything, how my privilege of being a white man who is healthy with access to economical resources on a standard level. Um, my The only characteristic that could be prone to discrimination is the fact that I'm gay, but that characteristic is invisible. It's not like exactly. the color of your skin so or the certain kinds of disability. So privilege is like the name, the, the, the word of the day for me. And it is an active consideration that I must have when I'm, if I went, for instance, went to Onifurshi and spoke about, oh, um, we must see how men can act because women, first of all, I must understand, I am not a woman. I don't identify as a woman. I do not have the life journey or, or context variables of a woman. So I cannot speak for her. So let's trust women to speak about their own experiences. Mm -hmm. I'm trusting my participants who speak about their own experiences as, as men who are targets of violence and that makes sense for me mm -hmm. so when you're talking about gender equality and if women are the ones who are disadvantaged clearly obviously at greater extents than men in so many ways let's provide them not only the space to act and to speak but also create the conditions in which they can provide their own experiences and their views not be discriminated against because Oh, she's just being a woman. Or mm. then that stereotypical case of, you know, she's on her period. Let's not like go there, you know. <laughs> yeah, that type so of things that unfortunately like... are still so present today. Mm -hmm. It's insane. Today we are closer to Eduardo Reis talking about becoming a man. to be a man can i be feminine while being a man can i be masculine while being a woman and it's like a more reflexive uh, reflective um what do you think oh definitely i'm i'm feminine in so many ways mm -hmm. that's the only thing that makes sense for me when i came out as as gay to myself it took longer because it was something stereotypically stereotypically traditionally i come from a town with 160 people it's heavily true. religious etc was about how do you coexist with the fact that I'm, i will be less of a man because of this or whatever naturally over the course of time I, i i am who i am and i have a certain degree of esteem for who i am after working on it by deconstructing like many lgbti people have to do deconstructing everything that was taught mm -hmm. everything about who we are supposed to be, how we are supposed to be in these things. You do you, as long as you're not hurting or invading other people's well-being and everything. And you can follow your own line. You can define your own sense of masculinity and femininity or none for non-binary people or gender fluid people. Sam Smith, he like won an Oscar for his song, everything else. And he came out as um, a non-binary people, if I'm not mistaken. These people are taking chances. This hurts their career, unfortunately, because mm -hmm. how the, the market is 
who's produced and they do not want something that different or that something like who cares you do you and your well-being is is what's most important so yeah i wanted to point out just one last thing which is men being feminine that mm. you said for you you discovered it when you came out as a gay person i confronted it in my perspective this is my perspective everyone performs traits that are traditionally the word here is traditionally associated with masculine and feminine roles okay to a certain point because they are traditional they are stereotypes they are uh, they are things that exist in our minds as a collective society they are uh, archetypal they are yeah there are these things that when you tell a story yeah it's these things that you're going to put there because they are yeah. so traditional yeah yeah and masculinity as it exists only exists as as a distinction from femininity. It is not a continuum as it should be, and as we know, as our theorize it now, as gender, as sexuality, as gender is a fluid. You go from one side of the spectrum to the other, and you oscillate between them, inherent and adapting certain characteristics from both. Before our misconceptions, gender was binary. You are either masculine or you are either feminine. In that poem that you read you either become very clever or you become very stupid or you do this or that or this or that. Yeah. These are like these mutually exclusive principles are not healthy for anyone. Mm -hmm. They put people in boxes. They put, if you deviate from that, if you're a woman and you are not pregnant by the, when you're 20, you're failing as a woman. Yeah, I'm, I'm exaggerating. Speaking like in the 17th century or 18th century. But it's century, the same today when you century. are about to yeah. 30, 40. If you're not yeah. married, if you're not if you're not pregnant, what well, well, like what? What's know? the meaning of your life then? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's a little bit like that. And I I want to make this clear that I think many men do not see themselves as feminine. Yeah. In het heterosexual relationships, mm -hmm. or it's even harder for them to to face it, yeah. like you said. And the same way, mm, females are not or don't want to be masculine as well when i speak about men being feminine is adapting or integrating feminine traditionally but it's so a, so give me exact examples of of this balance in in behavior in a man for that instance, is traditionally women were uh, brought up to be the how do you say the traditional wives imagine like staying at home if a woman doesn't stay at if for instance people who believe that uh, if women stayed at home longer and they did not spend so much time in their jobs, their children would be brought up better, in a better way. This poses the question, what about the father? Where is the father of the ch children? For the mother, if there is some sex relationship, but they put the blame or the, the position is directed towards women, what they should be doing. What about the world? Man, a man, imagine that, okay, traditionally, sports cars, football etc traditionally once again but then he really likes to cook and like keep, keeps the house clean because he's organized not because he's he's feminine or something but because he does that traditionally if you look at to it towards with a, a gender lens those characteristics could be more attributed to a female because women were brought to do that and men went to their jobs they spent their, their day at the jobs and then they got home, the wife had the dinner ready, and then, well, he didn't, he stayed, laid on the couch while the woman cleans the dishes. Imagine bullfights. 
men in Portuguese culture have always been taught not to wear bright colors, everything. Remember the yeah. dresses worn by bullfighters? They are, they are pink. They pink, are this pink with this... velvet yeah. and like details. With lights and... Why? They are in an extreme masculine position of facing a beast, like in a coliseum. And one last example that I wanted to speak about, which was about movies and how masculinity and how we frame this, it links exactly how men are allowed certain things if they fulfill certain criteria. And women do not cannot afford that. I don't know if you saw the Below Seven Skyfall no, movie. No, unfortunately. With Daniel Craig and Judi Dench and uh, Javier Bardem. So basically, this movie was directed by Sam Mendes, which is... In this movie, James Bond, who is an hero, masculine hero for over, like, I think, 50 years. Mm -hmm. Fast cars, yeah. secret agent, killing people, and above all, women. <laughs> women everywhere. He's... A sex machine is yeah. incredible. In this movie, Sam Mendes, as an intelligent director and as a visionary director, the villain is called Silva. He's an agent in this play by Javier Bardem. And the weird thing is, it is implied that Silva is gay. A villain in a Bond movie is gay. So, on that sense, Explosions. right now, my explosion. <laughs> I spoiler alert for everyone who's watching. Um, <laughs> there is an interrogation scene in which Silva, uh, like sensually, Bond is tied and essentially, like, essentially, is in a sensuous way interrogating him, like, oh, Mr. Bond, and then caressing him on, on the face and everything. And basically, Silva implies that, you know, Bond, because despite these, these difficulties that we're having, because I'm the villain in your thing, I would totally go f for you. Like, I would, like, totally be up for it. And Bond replies, what makes you think you would be my first? And I was so mind-blown by this because link it with the masculinity and what we allow men to be and what we allow women to be. It spent 50 years of this incredible icon of sex, of masculinity and everything, and then some director comes and questions the fact that it's not strictly masculine according to traditional ways and could possibly, it was clever, not, he kept the door open. He didn't make any certainty. But pondering the fact that James Bond could have ever like kissed a man, I thought it was subversive in an incredible way because modeling that type of behavior and people seeing that okay even James Bond could have kissed the guy or could have been with the guy could have been romantic with the guy opens the possibilities for men for women for everyone and I think it's an ultimate way to live I wanted to close with asking you to read a poem because okay. you are not only a scientist but a writer a thinker um i was well, I, we, well never, we never we never we never we never know yeah so i must say that this was the product of my first big crush so bear in mind that this well you know <laughs> <laughs> so it goes like this I do not understand what happened. I am startled, breathless, with this uncertain destiny that shows me as the one. From now on, the message emerges. I will change the world, fighting always with bravery. 
My mission is not even that complicated. I do it with pride. I do it with my heart. When listening to Closer, you will hear me speaking with different guests from the arts, academia, business or life wonders. You will get to know people whose job defines who they are and you will also get to know those that are crafting their lives and that no job definition fits them. Our conversations will bring to light the experience of genuinely meeting someone. The music team you are listening to was composed and produced by Mariani, a Portuguese musician and a longtime friend. Closer was composed, curated, produced and hosted by me. If you like the experience of being Closer, you can support this project in multiple ways, such as using Patreon or sponsoring. However, if you prefer to support Closer in another way, you can subscribe to this podcast, leave a review or just talk with someone that you think would appreciate listening. All support is accepted and appreciated in any form. Even by just being there and listening, you are supporting this project so much. So thank you and welcome closer. <laughs>